Welcome to tonight's uh, second lecture in the in this term's uh, this year's series of uh, lectures in the Ralph Miliband programme uh, on the theme of nations and borders. Uh, I'm Anne Phillips. I'm from the LSE Government Department and Gender Institute, and I'll be chairing the uh, the meeting this evening. Um, and it's my uh, very great pleasure to introduce uh, our speaker for tonight, Sundar Katwala. Uh, who um, was General Secretary of the Fabian Society for many years, has worked as a journalist for The Observer, among other papers, I think, uh, but is currently the director of British Future, which is a recently formed, I think just, just last year, two, two years? 2012, yeah. 2012, recently formed uh, non-party political think tank, which is particularly focused on issues of identity, migration, and integration, and represents a broadly optimistic uh, sane voice uh, on matters of identity within a multi-ethnic, multicultural society. Um, uh, recent publications from the think tank include um, uh, Why People Don't Want Segregated Schools, uh, The Melting Pot Generation, How Britain Became More Relaxed About Race, and uh, for those of you who are into sport, uh, there's a lot of interesting material on the particular um, role of sport in the formation of identities. Um, in, in October, the um, uh, Future Britain, British Future Britain, British Future, British Future, British Future, um, <laughs> co-hosted with the Institute of Public Policy Research, a, a festival on Englishness. Um, exploring who defines themselves as English and what it means when they do, which is clearly an issue that's then um, going to be very much uh, central to uh, the themes tonight and, and clearly are going to become uh, particularly uh, pressing um, if the Scots decide, as personally I very much hope they don't, uh, to, uh, to vote for independence in the uh, forthcoming referendum. So uh, please join me in welcoming uh, our lecturer for tonight on the theme of Is There a Progressive Case for National Identity? Thank you very much, Anne. Thank you for inviting me to the LSE to give this lecture tonight on the subject of national identity as part of your series In Memory and Honour of Ralph Miliband. When I first agreed to give this talk this summer, I had no idea this would be a year in which Ralph Miliband's own patriotism would be both aggressively questioned and then robustly defended. Britain was Ralph Miliband's adopted country. Britain gave him sanctuary when he needed refuge from fascism. And he served in the Royal Navy as part of the effort which defeated Hitler. He was certainly a man very much of the left, a thinker within the Marxist tradition. But he was also just as committed to intellectual freedom behind the Iron Curtain as he was here at home at the LSE, uh, a school he shared with uh, people like Hayek and Popper. Um, I think the general reaction to the row over the claim that Ralph Miliband was the man who hated Britain captured a healthy, quite British, aversion to culture wars over political litmus tests of people's patriotism. Perhaps in hindsight it was just a cunning ploy to bring the Miliband brothers back together. Or maybe not. But anyway, I suspect just about everything that needs to be said about all of that has been said by now. So tonight I want to cast forward to what next year might tell us about national identity. Because 2014 will be the year of identity. I think it will be the year of national identities in our multinational state of Britain today. 
On January the 1st, Romanian and Bulgarian workers joined those in 25 other countries with the right to work here and across the European Union. As Britain opens our borders, there doesn't seem to be much public demand for Beethoven's Ode to Joy to be played at Victoria Coach Station for anybody who comes. The Prime Minister's view is that free movement needs to be less free, a view which the other party leaders seem to share. In May, 375 million of us across Europe can go to the polls to elect the European Parliament. More than a third of us will probably take up the offer. But the European elections will in reality be 27 different elections fought by national parties, mostly on national issues. UKIP leader Nigel Farage has already boasted he expects his party to top the polls here in Britain, campaigning under the banner of restoring British national sovereignty by leaving the European Union. In June, England's football team go to play in the World Cup of football. They'll be one of only 32 footballing nations to take the field in Brazil who do not have a state to their name. In July, Glasgow will welcome more than 50 nations to participate in the Commonwealth Games, a sporting event that reflects the fraternal voluntary cooperation of countries which were once part of the British Empire, plus a couple like Mozambique and Rwanda who have joined anyway, despite not sharing that historic link. In August, the day after the Commonwealth Games closing ceremony, it will be exactly a century since Britain declared war on Germany to enter the first great global conflict which did so much to shape the century which was to follow. Glasgow Cathedral will host the Queen and Commonwealth leaders to mark the centenary. The Prime Minister will join European leaders in a collective act of commemoration and reconciliation. Candles will be snuffed out at 11 o'clock at Westminster Abbey and across the country, symbolising that moment a century ago when the lights went out across Europe. And then, within six weeks, Scots will choose whether they want to remain within the United Kingdom or to strike out for independence. This could prove one of the most significant events in 300 years of British political history. It dominates Scottish public life, though many people in England, Wales and Northern Ireland are probably still only vaguely aware that this vote is to take place. Straight afterwards, the final political conference season of this Parliament, party leaders will effectively be kicking off the long campaign to the next general election. How will they make sense of all this identity talk? How will they navigate their way through the complexity? I expect we'll hear them once again compete to claim the mantle of being one nation leaders. So 2014 will be a year when we do think and talk and argue about national identity. I'm going to, argue, I'm going to explore tonight the argument that this doesn't or shouldn't matter and we should focus on something more important instead. But before I do that, let me tell you something about how national identity came to matter to me. Any national identity can draw on millions of individual experiences, so let me tell you about my personal journey into thinking about ours. If you want to start at the beginning, I was born in a hospital in Doncaster on the 1st of April 1974. So I was born British a couple of weeks after my dad's 30th birthday. Three decades earlier, he'd been born some 4,000 miles away in Baroda, India, the state of Gujarat, about 70 miles from the Ahmedabad birthplace of Mahatma Gandhi. But the funny thing is, actually, Dad had been born British too. This was 1944, three years before Gandhi's cause of Indian independence was to prevail. He was born a subject of the British Empire at a time when two and a half million Indians were taking part in the military effort to defeat fascism. Dad became Indian between his third and fourth birthday, and he's become British again since then. And that's because in 1968, he got on a plane to Heathrow Airport. He was 24. He completed his medical training. He spent a summer working as a doctor on the Indian Railways. He came here to work for the NHS. 
He arrived at Heathrow on the Whitsun Bank holiday in 1968, exactly a fortnight after a speech had been given in a Birmingham hotel, which was to resonate down the decades. I suspect that rivers of blood speech hadn't been immediately as widely reported in India as Enoch Powell might have hoped that it, that it would be. Um, but by 1968, Enoch Powell's central argument was no longer about curbing immigration. There were already one and a quarter million Commonwealth immigrants here when my dad arrived. For Powell, the focus had shifted. It was now about persuading as many of them as possible to return home. Here, Enoch had an unusual ally in this specific case, my granddad also called Sundar. He came to England to persuade my dad he should return home. He went as far to put a fairly generous repatriation package on the table. He could help my dad set up a local surgery to practice as a doctor. He was ready to arrange a marriage for him too. But dad had decided to make his own choices. He'd met my mother, who hailed from County Cork in the south of Ireland. Now, one thing I can tell you about Cork is that definitely wasn't British anymore by the time she was born there in the 1940s, the Irish Republic having been proclaimed a generation before. But the funny thing is, Mum didn't need or have a passport when she took the ferry from Cork to Holyhead and take a bus south to Portsmouth to begin her training as a nurse. I suppose you're coming here as an immigrant, she was asked by the ticket guard looking at her one-way ticket. And Mum's never become a British citizen, actually. But that hasn't stopped her voting in 15 general elections since then. British law never quite wanted to treat the Irish in Britain as we would other foreigners, even though Ireland was never, regrettably, to join the Commonwealth. So it was my parents met in a Surrey hospital just outside London a few years before I was born. It was only many years later I realised my national identity had already been a subject of fierce public dispute before I was even born. If you happen to be British-born and a child of migrants to Britain, it'd be quite hard not to take Enoch's infamous speech, at least a little bit personally. It was actually a speech about my national identity, its difficulty, in all probability its impossibility, and the devastating social consequences that would follow from that for everybody else. Or, as Enoch put it, to quote, Sometimes people point to the increasing proportion of immigrant offspring born in this country as if that fact contained within it the ultimate solution. The truth is the opposite. The West Indian or Asian does not, by being born in England, become an Englishman. In law, he becomes a United Kingdom citizen by birth. In fact, he is a West Indian or an Asian still. He will, by the very nature of things, have lost one country without gaining another, lost one nationality without acquiring a new one. Time is running against us and there. With the lapse of a generation or so, we shall at last have succeeded to the benefit of nobody in reproducing in England's green and pleasant land the haunting tragedy of the United States. So it was Enoch's fervent wish that I might never be born. He feared that that would simply be one more stick on the funeral pile of British identity. But 1968 was not the only time Enoch and my dad's paths had not quite crossed. Enoch himself had been in India when my dad was born in 1944. And while he was there on military service, he penned perhaps the most intriguing sentence ever conjured up by the complex contradictions of his great yet deeply troubled mind. What Enoch wrote to his parents after a couple of years in India was this. I felt as Indian as I did British. Now, I never felt, felt that. I never felt that myself, but I'd never spent nearly so long in India as Powell did. He'd only ever gone into politics because he wanted to be Viceroy of India. He never quite recovered from what his biographer called the spiritual amputation of Indian independence. Fortunately for me, nobody told my eight-year-old self 
there was any question of whether I could be English. The only really pressing national question I was aware of aged eight was whether Kevin Keegan would get fit in time for the World Cup. But what had seemed straightforward when I was eight had got a bit more complicated by the time that I was 18. Still, I came to think of mine as a very British identity. With Indian and Irish parents, was I ever going to be anything else? It was hardly a matter of random coincidence I came to be British rather than Belgian. If I was a child of empire, post-war immigration and the NHS, could you get more British than that? Not everybody I met in the school playground agreed. Back then, the question of whether you could be black and British, Asian and British was still being sorted out. Few people today can remember why that seemed quite so difficult a question. Popular culture by the 1990s had, as Paul Gilroy was to argue, put plenty of black in the Union Jack. So Enoch was wrong. But he was right about his numbers. Four million of them, he had warned, by the end of the century. By the time that happened, we were talking about four million of us, including two million of us born in Britain to parents who came here from elsewhere. Anxieties about the scale and pace of immigration certainly remain today, but the foundational question of who counts as equally British was decisively resolved. Enoch's Tory successor was the MP for Wolverhampton, Paul Upple, was recently able to speak in the House of Commons of the pride he, the pride he takes as a Sikh and a British Asian. In the Wolverhampton and the Sikh contributions that will be marked during next year's First World War centenary, one in three Team GB medals at London 2012 were celebrated and reflected the contribution of three generations of immigration and integration to British society, won by athletes who were foreign-born or whose parents or grandparents had come to this country from another country. I suppose my personal experiences growing up affected in several ways what I think today about why national identity matters. National identity definitely mattered to me. Perhaps it's more important to stake a claim to an identity if it's being challenged and contested in the playground as much as by speeches from decades before. I think that might explain why the citizenship survey and other academic surveys show that those from ethnic minority backgrounds report themselves being just that little bit prouder to be British than the average. I think it's taught me that we do need to secure the foundations of a shared identity in a diverse society. If we're interested in integration, national identity has to be open on terms of equal citizenship to those who want to join and belong. And that means that we all need to decide collectively what demands can be legitimately made of each of us as part of the common citizenship we need in a liberal and open society. I also think uh, it, it made me believe that we do need to understand how our identities are shaped by Britain's history. The history of any nation is complex and contested, but I think we should never shy away from interrogating that if we want to understand how we became the society that we now are. But another view of all of this might be that it just demonstrates the trouble with national identity. It's clearly both personal and public. It could be deeply emotive. It can be potentially polarising. Does its power to include ultimately depend on those it excludes? Can there ever be a meaningful us which doesn't depend on not being there? Might we not be better off without it entirely? Tonight I want to make three arguments why I don't think we would be. Firstly, simple fact, identity and nationhood do matter to people. Predictions that national identity would wither away have been consistently disappointed. It may even matter more rather than less in this age of individualisation and globalisation. Secondly, I want to note the value of national identity for those pursuing progressive, liberal and internationalist causes. But thirdly, I also want to say there are limits, I think, to this idea of a progressive patriotism. 
And I want to say why I don't think its goal should be to try and define national identity entirely on its own progressive political terms. So let's look at the case against national identity. There's always been a utopian argument for a borderless nationless world. You find it maybe centuries ago in Thomas More's Utopia. You could find it in John Lennon's Imagine, too. Imagine there's no country. It isn't hard to do, nothing to die or fight for, and no religion, too. But if you were to stop and try to do that, it's actually quite a bit harder, I think, than John Lennon imagined. Since the LSE is a pretty cosmopolitan place, I wouldn't be at all surprised to bump into a Martian sociologist, Professor Zog, on a visiting fellowship to research a new edition of his intergalactic blockbuster, Earthlings and Their Ways. I hear it's actually outselling Anthony Gibbons around the solar system. Um, Now, our visiting Martian might quickly discover the popularity of football during next summer's World Cup. And Professor Zog has got a brain the size of a planet, so he'll quickly work the game out, even the offside rule. But one thing puzzles him. While seven or eight million people will sit down and watch these games every night, that always doubles to 15 million, 20 million, whenever the team in white shirts play. But even Professor Zog can see you don't have to be watching for very long to see the team in white shirts are not nearly as good as the team playing yellow shirts, blue shirts, red shirts. Slightly fewer people in this country watched the last World Cup final sat through England drawing nil-nil with Algeria. What explains that is the everyday commonplace acting out of national identity. So Professor Zog doesn't think he's going to be able to endorse the John Lennon vision when he writes his chapter on national identity in the Earthlings. Why, if national identity is just an optional extra, why aren't there several societies that have just done away with it? What would be the basis for government and for democratic politics if there was no such thing as national identity. I think we can't, in truth, easily imagine ourselves without any sense of national identity. But there are still two common arguments against national identity, perhaps somewhat in tension with each other. The first is that national identity is irrational, meaningless, it deifies a mere accident of birth, so that any form of patriotism is a form of irrationality that we ought to grow out of and evolve beyond. An alternative, and I think perhaps a bit more plausible critique, agrees on the irrationality but not the meaninglessness. Rather, the problem here is that national identity is all too dangerously meaningful, that flags, anthems and national pride must lead to xenophobia, hatred, jingoism and war. Now, the core proof of the meaningless argument is usually said to be the inability to define any unique characteristics of the national identity in question. It's quite true no one's got a precise, concise, three-word, unifying, exclusive definition of what it means to be British, or English, Scottish, or Welsh, or indeed French, Italian, or Brazilian. The mystery to me is why this should be thought to prove that national identity doesn't exist or shouldn't exist, given that most of us, evidently every day, act on the belief that it does. I don't think to to believe that this country thinks of itself as having a distinctive sense of humour, something most people do believe, means that nobody else ever tells or gets a joke. I don't think the demand that an identity depends on entirely unique characteristics is one we would apply elsewhere to other ideas about identity. Could we talk about the London School of Economics having a distinctive ethos? I think many of its students, staff and visitors might think it does. Many of you tonight would offer me some ideas about what the content, what it is that makes the LSE different. It would be very surprising 
if there were no overlap at all with the answers I might get from a similar audience at Oxford or Cambridge, Yale or Delhi, Edinburgh or King's College London. But that wouldn't prevent those who knew two or three of these institutions well, making distinctions between them that other people would recognise. Take another example. There's an ethic of public service in both the NHS and in the Army, with some common but some quite distinct features. I think outsiders would find differences in the ethos between the Army, the Navy and the Air Force narrower. Many of us would find those between particular Army regiments quite imperceptible if we weren't part of them. But it'd be surprising, it wouldn't be surprising to hear those distinctions, smaller distinctions, mattered rather more to those who were involved. We inherit some identity commitments and we choose others. Some of them have quite arbitrary origins. Yet, even sports teams can provide meaningful, lifelong allegiances because once we choose them, we join communities of commitment and belonging, memory and allegiance. The point of a national identity, I think, is not who can define it. It's who has a felt sense of belonging to it. And of course, the national identities of democratic societies are going to overlap. Just about every liberal democracy is grappling with the challenge of how national identities, which one once largely ethnically defined, could become civic and inclusive, yet still retain an authentic sense of belonging. But facing similar challenges doesn't make our distinct identities identical. Sometimes different countries will sign up to the same international treaties of human rights, join the same multilateral clubs, the United Nations, the European Union, but will still then go on to make distinct choices about important public issues because of what we think about who we are. Take Britain and France as a case. Both are European societies, both are societies of many faiths and not. Both talk about the value of secularism, yet mean different things by it. So we make different choices about the role and limits of faith in the public sphere, whether that's retaining an established church, albeit quite an agnostic one in Britain, or choosing to ban the burqa in France. Both Britain and France think of themselves as strongly committed to the principle of anti-discrimination and equal citizenship. But again, we take very different approaches to it. The British habit of collecting data on outcomes for those from different ethnic backgrounds helps us to track progress on equal opportunity. For the French, collecting those statistics, acknowledging discrimination on racial grounds, would itself risk being a betrayal of a core Republican idea of equal citizenship. So identity changes the decisions we make, even within common democratic frameworks. But what do progressives think about national identity? Is there a progressive case? Strangely, you sometimes find there's a tendency to be in favour of national identity, just as long as it's somebody else's. This is a point noted by George Orwell back in the 1940s. It's a strange fact, but it's unquestionably true, he wrote, that almost any English intellectual would be more ashamed of being caught standing to attention during God Save the King than of stealing from a poor box. Yet that aversion to national identity and patriotism often, didn't, often wasn't a barrier to an enthusiastic understanding of post-colonial identities of the new independent post-war states. The English left, said Orwell, risked being suckers for anybody's patriotism except their own. Perhaps today closer to home, does this explain why England and Englishness are still the hole in the pole image of our uneven devolution settlement? It's quite curious to find that some on the English liberal left casting an envious eye at Alex Salmond's civic Scottishness while feeling much more sceptical 
about their own flag of St. George. But I think those committed to progressive ends, internationalism and social justice, will weaken these causes if they're allergic to national identity or see it as enemy territory or just irrational passions to be managed or at best assuaged, rather than thinking about how to help to turn these into possible resources for social and political change. Firstly, as Michael Ignatieff wrote in his book Blood and Belonging, looking at identity after 1989 and before the Berlin Wall. Cosmopolitanism is surely the privilege of those who can take a secure nation-state for granted. Think also of how Martin Luther King did not, in his famous I Have a Dream speech, just focus on arguing that racism and segregation are wrong. He made a deep appeal to American values, to the declaration of independence, to the promissory note of equal citizenship and equal rights. The dilemma for his audience was that he was appealing to American values and icons which were deeply resonant to them, not just quoting the Bible, but the secular scriptures of the founding fathers of the American Constitution. That example suggests to me that national identity can have a power for progressive change that's unlikely to be emulated or matched by a sort of purely post-national, purely cosmopolitan, Esperanto progressivism. But there's no point, I think, in admiring the progressive use of patriotism by others if you can't engage in the work of how you would develop a progressive idea of patriotism of your own. Those countries which do most in the world in an internationalist way don't just commit to meeting development aid targets or hosting Middle East peace summits just because they want to be citizens of the world. It reflects their sense of national identity, what you might call the Balkan patriotism, the Scandinavian countries. But Britain has a proud tradition of this type of internationalism too. It's probably another legacy of being a post-imperial country that's always, for good and bad, been globally engaged. I think that helps to explain why Britain was the birthplace of Amnesty International and why, from live aid to make poverty history, it's often led each generation of international development campaigning. So I say that progressives need to engage with patriotism and can advance their progressive causes by doing so. But I also want to argue there are some limits to the idea of a progressive patriotism. I think the motive for progressive patriotism, which I think is an idea that Ed Miliband has developed, the Labour leader, I think it's less obvious in the writings of Ralph Miliband, but uh, uh, it's it's something that's there, I think, in, in social democratic thinking today. The motivation is often, I think, to help liberals and the left engage with patriotism, and so, for some, reach beyond their comfort zone by doing so. But I think the idea of a progressive patriotism can sometimes remain something of a comfort blanket. It risks, I think, offering an analysis of the case for engaging with national identity, when national identity, foundationally, I think, also depends on a felt sense of belonging. I also think it's long overdue that we should ditch talk of reclaiming the flag from extreme groups like the British National Party or the English Defence League, though this is regularly described as a core motivation for progressive patriotism. It's certainly good to oppose extremism and hate speech, but I simply see no need to attribute ownership of widely valued national symbols to extreme groups who have only ever had a tiny following and a marginal presence. One thing that people haven't noticed is that if the British National Party loses its couple of seats in the European Parliament, as is quite likely, it will have no representation 
representation whatsoever at any level in elected British politics, not in the European Parliament, not in a single local council ward. You'll have elected politics in Britain being a fascist-free zone and with no party with that roots and tradition having support anywhere. So I think we should celebrate that, but not then talk as if our national symbols are still owned by that movement that has been decisively rejected. And here, I think, progressive patriots risk inadvertently pathologising everyday expressions of national identity. I also think that one of the most important differences between liberal and authoritarian societies is that national identity in a liberal, plural and democratic society just cannot belong to any one political tradition. Though the motives of a progressive patriotism are inclusive, I think it can risk offering too narrowly defined a progressive account of national identity and appear to suggest that patriotism is legitimate but only under licence on progressive terms. Take very one very small example recently. Deputy Prime Minister Nick Clegg was challenging UKIP's arguments for pulling out of the European Union. And he said this. It would be, quote, betrayal of the national interest and an unpatriotic approach. Now, it's perfectly in order, I think, for Nick Clegg to argue that UKIP's views would damage the national interest. But I also think it's clear that opposing views about whether it's good for Britain to be in or out of the European Union are sincerely held. And the accusation of being unpatriotic goes further. It's an accusation of bad faith. I think those who disagreed with the Daily Mail over Ralph Miliband being the man who hated Britain should be uncomfortable, actually, with Nick Clegg's attack on Nigel Farage's patriotism, too. I think we all have to accept that our national identity is shared with those with whom we might disagree profoundly about political choices and what's in our best national interests, and we have to then work out how those differences are resolved. And I think perhaps Scotland's referendum demonstrates a good model here, even when the issue at stake is the very foundational one of which political community Scots want to be part of. Most on both sides of the referendum can agree, I think, that this is an argument between patriotic Scots who differ about what's in the best interests of their country. They've also agreed on how to settle the question. The legitimacy of this public referendum and its outcome is not in doubt. I wonder if there might even be a lesson here for Britain's deeply contested membership of the European Union. For half a century, we've been torn, for reasons of both interest and identity, about what we think Britain should do about our place in Europe. We chose to stay out at the start, but decided to join later, but have often remained semi-detached as members of the club. The question of our participation is coming back onto the agenda. Ultimately, I think successful British participation in the European Union must depend on public consent. It's impossible, actually, to engage constructively in the councils of Europe without it. One day in the next few years, this might well be another foundational question of modern identity, whether we're in the club or not, that all citizens are asked to settle, decide, and abide by the outcome. Just to return to end to the year ahead, I think 2014 could have a decisive impact on reshaping our identities. Alex Salmond will put the challenge that Britain as a political union belongs to the past. Nigel Farage will ask whether Britain is still Britain or can regain its sense of itself without leaving Europe. But we'll also hear many competing arguments about different visions of national identity as we argue about the value of ending the UK or mending it, how far British identity can accommodate a growing sense of Scottish, English, Welsh, Northern Irish identity and whether we have to choose between them or not, whether we'd be better off out of the European club or should stay in. 
when we want to welcome the positive contribution of immigration, how far we want to restrict it to reduce the pace of change, how Britain should engage with intensified competition in a changing global economy, what we want our foreign policy to say about how we engage in the world. All of these will be arguments about identity as well as about interests. All of them involve choices. None of them, I think, can be settled by simple appeals to what the evidence proves. Trying to argue and calculate what those different choices might mean in pounds and pence, Scottish independence, leaving Europe, that, that will matter to the decisions that people want to make. But it will often be the case that the argument about what sort of country we think we are and want to be in the future will matter more. Identity, I think, can often trump economics. Now, this could prove get to next Christmas, to have been a year of rupture, where our identities fragment in the face of apparently existential challenges. But I think it could also prove one of adaptation and change. The adaptability of British identity is easily underestimated. I think we perhaps too easily forget that properly understood is not really a national identity at all, but the civic, shared civic identity of a multinational state. And that, I think, helps to explain why what it means to be British changed a great deal over the last generation or two. In a powerful and, for me, positive way, British identity became decisively more plural over the last 25 years. One foundational question of who we are in a multi-faith and multi-ethnic society was, I think, decisively settled more confidently than has often been the case elsewhere in Europe. Since the 1990s, I think we found considerably more public space for the increasingly confident modern Scottish and Welsh identity, though we struggled to do anything similar to give Englishness a voice or to turn the absence of conflict in Northern Ireland to a deeper cross-community engagement in that most divided part of Britain. So this, I think, 2014 will clearly be a year when national identity matters, and in several important respects it will be up for grabs, but few of the outcomes of these debates are predetermined which is why I think anybody with an interest in which choices are made about any of those debates is likely to find themselves grappling with and arguing about questions of identity. I want to see a British identity which shows it has the capacity to adapt again, which can give us the confidence that our democracy can address the anxieties people feel today about the pace of economic and cultural change, how we manage immigration and promote integration, and how we bring people together to create a society that people want to share. But if I haven't managed to persuade you in this lecture tonight of the importance of engaging in national identity, I might just leave you with one final modest piece of advice. If you don't want to think about national identity, you might find that you'd enjoy next year more if you went to spend it somewhere else. Thank you very much. Thank you, thank you very much for that. And um, so we now have uh, opportunity for um, questions from you. Um, do, we, do we need the mics in this room? Do we normally need them more? Uh, I think some people might might want them, and we do have the roving mics. Are oh, you recording them? So we so so uh, if you put your hand up if you want to ask a question, but wait until uh, you've got the roving mic. So would you like to ask the first question? So over. over I was wondering what your thoughts might be on the US as a comparison as to why 
the UK doesn't usually talk about it, but I've decided to take the questions as we have them, which is in the Yeah, okay. I think um, I think the question of language is quite important to people, but where it would fit in for me is around this question of as a question of integration and as a question of citizenship. What is it reasonable to demand in a liberal society as the content of a shared? common citizenship and what do you leave in the live and let live box of make your own choices and what do we leave as a kind of issue to be settled you know, in political debate more, more broadly. And I think there's a wide public intuition which I share that um, a common language is very, very important to a common citizenship and that it would be very difficult to make a meaningful common citizenship work in Britain today without there being a common language. So you have language tests as part of immigration and citizenship and so on. And I think that's right um, because I think if we say, if we take a common language uh, as a... um, as a positive thing that you need for full and equal participation in our society. I think it's very, very hard to make the case that you could have um, a sort of full and equal economic participation, civic participation in our democratic life without having access to that content. So I think, I think a shared and common language is, I think, a legitimate thing to, to want. And uh, I think it's problematic and difficult if it's, if it's missing. I think linguistic diversity can be a very good thing on top of that. Uh, and there might be all sorts of cultural, linguistic, economic and other advantages from valuing, you know, much more than we do. We're a pretty monoglot country linguistic diversity but I do sometimes worry when people say you know the brilliant thing about London is there are 300 languages being spoken I mean you know fine that's that's a good thing it represents the sort of diversity of a global city but the brilliant thing about the schools in this borough is the kids speak 75 languages well in the classroom you know you've actually got to do quite a lot of intense work quite early to actually bring people up to speed with a class of five-year-olds with a common language I think that's one of the best investments we can make and if you don't make that investment you'd have I think parents worry about the impact, actually, of the teaching of children if teachers are trying to cope with the fact that they've got people who don't speak English. If you do make that investment, I think you can actually say to people there's a benefit for us all because it's actually good for our kids to grow up in diverse classrooms with diverse cultural influences if that's a positive gain for the type of world you're going to grow up into as long as you've got that shared means of communication. So I think, I think common language is one of the very, very few things that people think is foundational. It's very hard to see how you make it work without it. Um, Common language and respect for the freedom of speech of others are probably the two sort of foundational demands that you do legitimately make, I think. I'm conscious I can't see people down there. Yes, yes. Hello. Yeah. I wanted to ask you a question. Um, I was thinking of a bit of research, and I found out that Bristol had their own um, kind of currency, like, you know, we've got the pounds here. Bristol has a kind of different kind of cur- a local currency. And I wasn't expecting to kind of find that out, but I was wondering whether that had affected their identity and whether that could be, you know, something that... 
would affect someone's identity. Like, for example, if we got rid of the pound, that would be something that would affect us. And that would be a big thing for the students in the I think there are quite a lot of these local parallel currencies in quite a, in quite a small scale way and as a sort of means of exchange outside the formal economy I think you know it's something people can choose can choose to do I, I think I think it's unlikely to have a sort of profound effect on people's identity until it starts to sort of displace you know the mainstream of economic activity in Bristol that I think is a long way off currencies are clearly um, you know something because they they speak to political and economic control and sovereignty control that are quite important. So the euro was clearly always an issue of identity as well as uh, of economics uh, as to whether we should have joined or not um, some time ago. I mean, you now have the interesting thing in Scotland where um, you know the SNP deputy first minister I heard on the uh, Radio 4 programme, Today programme, was saying it's, um, it's Scotland's pound just as much of it's England's pound and uh, you know that, that sterling is going to be an important sort of symbol of Scottish nationalism and I don't think any of us were expecting that but I think, um, I think Scottish, Scottish National Party I think was expecting the European Union to be in considerably better shape than it's in uh, at this particular juncture of history. Um, I think the thing that made Scottish independence a possible thought was the slogan independence in Europe um, uh, a generation ago because it proved you wouldn't sort of end up in some sort of isolated sort of uh, Albanius type situation. Um, I think because of the problems of the Eurozone in Europe, the manifesto put forward now is independence in Britain. And that's much more of a kind of nuanced and complicated thing than people expected. about sort of Amnesty International and development campaigning, I think, I think it very much is 
a legacy of being a post-imperial society and on the whole a positive one with I think some of the question marks about the power relationships in it that that you identify and it's up to I think as people engaged in developing development campaigning to recognise that and to be challenged on that I think by their allies and to cede power and control I think of those kinds of campaigns but the uh, the preference for you know global engagement rather than a more inward looking identity I think is there and then that 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 will also I think I think play out um the sort of is it is it just anything goes I think you know it's a perfectly good question that if sort of like it's just you know diversity is your identity so more diversity would be more identity I don't, I don't think it does work like that I think I think national identity is different to other forms of identity because a, 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 a sort of liberal society I think is trying to protect for all of us the autonomy to make decisions about our identities for ourselves and one of the things that happens in a sort of civil war type situation is that breaks down and you'll have your identity ascribed onto you by other people. And if you choose not to have that identity, you'll find it very difficult not to. And sometimes divided societies that aren't in direct conflict have those features. Actually, Northern Ireland has lots of those features. You know, you have to tick a box where you belong to one of the other traditions, even if you might be someone who says, I don't you know, really want to reflect, reflect that. So we're trying to protect the sort of ability to make choices about all sorts of other things, you know, how strongly you feel about your hometown or, you know, your politics or anything and, you know, how you identify in those ways. You know, we're trying to make sure that that's open. But I, I think that deciding on the content of common citizenship is one of the ways that we keep that open. So that needs to be collectively negotiated and there need to be boundaries. There needs to be a sort of process for doing that. Now, that's easy to see in a new society where you decide that the constitution-making moment and then the constitutional document will be the way you do that, if you can do that. But Britain happens to be a society. It's not that we don't have a constitution. It's that we have a kind of culture of not codifying it, not writing it down. But we have you know, a civic and political identity with institutions and so on. So the thing about British identity is we didn't talk about it say in the 50s, because everybody knew what it was. The need to talk about it is partly the fact that it's more fragmented, it's more contested, and so you've actually got to do the work, I think, of negotiating and agreeing what the, what the boundaries are, and it won't be, I think, anything goes. There will be some uh, positions that are incompatible with common citizenship, such as denying the right to common citizenship of others. But the question in a liberal society is how contemptful does that have to be to make a liberal society work? Can I ask a question? Can I, can I uh, pick up what I think to be um, one of the, the implications of the question about um, uh, Bristol currency or local currencies, yes. which uh, which is that I mean, for, for many people, the kind of the locality is is as important a source of identity as anything like the nation. I think I think for many people in London, yeah. that's that's very kind of self evidently true. Um, and I mean, many people talk about identity as a kind of series of, sort of you know overlapping identities in which you know depending on the context you define yourself as a, a Londoner, English, British, European, you know whatever it might be. Um, is there any particular reason why national identity should be privileged within that? Yeah, I think that's a very good question. I mean, one interesting thing I think that the attitudes data suggests is that this doesn't tend to be particularly zero-sum. 
it doesn't tend to be that you say I'm a local person or I'm a national person. What you actually seem to have going on is a sort of more that what's driving this is an overall sense of optimism and pessimism, engagement and disengagement. And so people who say, I feel a strong sense of belonging to my very local area, to my town, to my region, to my nation. So you're, often those things all go together. So people either score highly on all of the layers of belonging or they score very lowly on all of the levels of belonging, although some people will have distinctive things. You know, Londoners, I think, have less kind of value and need for national identity than people, or like a particularly sort of open, cosmopolitan and diverse version of sort of Olympic kind of Britishness because there's a kind of cultural, economic and social confidence about being a capital city, being a global city, um, and so on. So on the whole, I think that um, we shouldn't underestimate the value of civic belonging and the sort of sense of, you know, Manchester as a place that brings people together. And actually, if you actually look at civic identity, where it's powerful, I think it actually came out of a need to manage mass migration, industrialisation, and to create identities that brought people together because they'd arrived in a place like Manchester or Turin or, or wherever for the first time. And to some extent, I think nations have taught... taught thought more about national identity for a similar reason, that it's that there's, there's more contestation and things there. The reason I would tend to privilege national identity somewhat is just this reason that it's underpinning the sense of citizenship. And I think it's very important to get the sort of ethos of a town or a city as a welcoming place where, I don't know, people walk the streets safely and so on. But often, uh, and certainly in the sort of Enoch Powell debate that I was kind of playing out, it would be very hard to decide that question separately in Birmingham and Liverpool. It was actually a sort of, it was the sort of ability to have an inclusive local and civic sense was slightly dependent on deciding who the us was at the, at the national level as well. It's never allowed me to feel English. 
it's never allowed me to find out what the contributions were from my own family. So as I was growing up building my identity in my teens, in my hometown in Wolverhampton, which had the backdrop of Enoch Powell's legacy, um, I'm troubled by this, and I fear that a top-down approach to considering national identity misses out um, history, sorry, the generations and decades of what has been, in my eyes, damaging my sense of belonging. And I've, I've never been able to consider that. And I speak, you know, I'm having to focus my peers about this. Um, and I've got to know what your thoughts are where we have history, which is not being taught to those people who are from ethnic minorities, who always start the position that they have to see themselves from the native majorities could you just say a little bit more about what, what you would see what you would like to see in the history the, what would the history that you see that's missing, that would be interesting okay, so I'm social and economic history at GCSE and I never heard the content of I learned the facts about um, data about canals and bridges and railways and all you name it I rarely heard anything about the contribution of what the Commonwealth or the Empire represents to that um, building of Britain, building the industrial nation, which I walk around in the back and you've seen it everywhere. Um, so that's what, that's what I'm talking about. I didn't see my parents, blood, sweat, and tears in that conversation, and I certainly didn't see my peers. I've been a very diverse part of all kinds of That contribution is never played, you know, Um, so it's a really interesting contribution. I think lots of different people will say versions of what you've said, and they'll say it from a lot of different positions and perspectives. And, you know, I think that's interesting and important. It shows you the way in which identity matters. It shows you the way in which cultural recognition matters. Um, and to some extent, I think there's a sort of sometimes sort of felt asymmetries that are felt by different people and often different groups claim that the asymmetry is there so um, people from minority background might say we're missing, we're invisible we need to be in the curriculum and at exactly the same time people will say oh, we're doing a lot of the diversity we're doing a lot of multi-faith recognition, what about us? Whereas the majority are and you risk having a sort of competing set of grievances of those two groups. And yet, um, I think the question of whether you could have a kind of curriculum that actually accommodated that on reasonable terms is, is a really important thing to try to do. I think this country had quite a lot of amnesia about empire. Uh, certainly around the 1950s and for quite a long time afterwards and partly I think it was a sense of loss and dispossession and not wanting to think about that and partly I think it was a, a fear of conflict if you did think about it so a sort of sense that in the sort of multi-ethnic classrooms of the 1970s and 1980s when you're sort of partly because of the amnesia you're experiencing this as a sort of brand new encounter and you're sort of you know i think on the sort of immigrant side certainly among say 
West Indian immigrants, quite a strong sense of what the history was, and then quite a surprise to find that history not known, not recognised. I think it's a very important sort of feature of the book um, Small Island, actually. That sort of surprise at the lack of the knowledge of the history you've been taught being also known in the mother country in the way that you thought that it, that it would be. And then, as that's recognised, a sort of fear of doing it. Would it be too divisive to do this in multi-ethnic classrooms when actually it's the only way to understand the multi-ethnic classroom? And for a long time, I think the, uh, the instinct was that the best way to do that would be to do some sort of universal values by teaching, say, you know, the Nazis and the Holocaust, which is a good set of universal values to do. And it's also quite unproblematic because, you know, nobody particularly wants to be the Nazis. And so you can sort of work that out. But a feeling that sort of getting the same values out of a more complex, more contested story about British history and empire might be too difficult. And I think that one thing that might be possible, and I think has been emerging a little bit since the 1990s, is a sense that actually it's both important to do it and possible to do it, and that it would be actually potentially unifying, not polarising, to do that, and that you could leave all of the difficulty in and do it. You don't have to do a kind of soft soap sort of version to do it. And one thing we've been looking a lot at at British Future and travelling around and holding workshops on is, what do people think about the centenary of the First World War next year, and why do they think it matters? We found ourselves exploring a sort of paradox, actually, which is that people care a lot about it, and they think they matter. it matters a great deal, even though they know almost nothing about it. Because we're trying to work out why would people care a lot about something they don't know about. And it's partly that it's, um, it's just beyond the fingertips of living memory. And so you'd like to know it, and you could almost remake the chain in your own family history, your own local history, and you wish you'd done it and you haven't. Now there's an opportunity to do it. So there's a chance to learn. That's kind of there. But also a real warmth towards um, the Commonwealth uh, aspect of that, the diversity aspect of that, as a shared history we ought to know about. And I think it's an interesting question of why in 1964 that wouldn't have been an aspect that people cared a lot about at the 50th anniversary. There's another thing going on there in terms of the cultural interrogation of what that meant. And now it's actually quite important to people. And certainly, I mean, there's a report we've published that you can get uh, copies of that, that looks of this. But, but by sort of, we then did some polling to test whether what people had said in these groups worked. 80% to 4% people said it would be important to integration today that everybody should know this history of a multi-ethnic society and it's very interesting that that was quite that appealed to people with very broad views actually about issues of identity diversity multiculturalism uh, and so on that we should know that now i think we're going to know it and about about four out of ten people even know the story at all you know that there were any commonwealth soldiers so um if we are going to do that, we're going to have to do it warts and all. And it will be difficult. And I also think it will be useful to do it with the difficulty and complexity in, because whatever view you take of, you know, you know terrible things that have happened, you can't, you can't rewrite that script. That is what has shaped the society we are. So it's potentially a sort of opportunity in a way that would surprise people to actually find out that, you know, there's a sort of shared experience of a difficult history that you can actually engage with. Okay, so I've I've got two people who've already asked questions who want to ask, and I will come back to you, but can I first go to um, somebody at the back there? Yeah, put up your hand. No? I imagine that. All right. (laughs) I imagined it. Okay, so so you were in the second row, um, and and then I'll come to you afterwards, yeah. Which was almost sort of dissociated in nature. And we've been quite backward looking 
You know, quite a lot of people feel that, and the reason that, because people feel that at the level of you know, um, high streets being too similar in a country like this, or you know, every capital city looking the same, or something, that's the reason that people hold on to and go back to both civic identity at the sort of city and local level and national identity. It's a response to that. So it's it's quite interesting, I think, sort of at the moment when the Berlin Wall fell. People might have thought that you would move to a moment when national identity kind of became less important and people thought sort of pan-continentally and so on, and that really didn't happen in, you know, quite a bloody way in some places, but also in quite a normal way in other places. People sort of recovered national identity. And, you know, with big kind of global moments, I mean, the Arab Spring was another one, very nationally framed, you know, even though it was happening on a pan-regional basis, distinctively national things were kind of happening. So in a way I think the sort of insistence of national identity is partly because of this sort of sense of homogenisation and the, the question in a way if you're a kind of person who wants to sort of embed and entrench a set of universal values and norms as well is how are you going to embed those in people's different national stories and I think you know, you know if you take say human rights I think they are, you know, accepted as belonging to a political nation or not as seen as an imposition from outside. So I think the trick of sort of universalism in a way is to is to sort of get it owned in the national story as, as the right thing for that nation to kind of do. You could tell a very British story about human rights or you could tell a very sort of story about human rights being a sort of dispossession of Britain. And I think that's a debate that you have to that you have to have, and it's hard to win arguments for universal values except on those terms. I think. So, a uh, question again in, in the front. Uh, so, so uh, we need the uh, microphone to. Yeah. Um, really, you need to comment that someone was making earlier about um, being taught um, identity, and I was just thinking about American schools and how the children are really encouraged and educated to become very patriotic and to do the Pledge of Allegiance. But really, it's kind of... It's, very, it's all about patriotism. And, you know, they, 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 they're really just taught to own their country and to love their country. But um, if you compare that to religion, like they've got in America, they teach civic rights, and they'll be they'll be teaching the history of the country and what happened, and then they they don't move away from that. They really, they own it and they teach it as a, as a lesson. But I find that here in Britain, like it seems that the identity is national identity has become much weaker, and it's dropped off the curriculum. I feel like it's not really taught. Like it's it's very. 
it's a low priority. And so the kind of history that you were talk talking about missing out on, I think is not there. And I think that that will affect our future. And I think that we need to bring that back in to the curriculum because I think if it's forgotten, then you know, it, will, it won't help the identity of the country or the citizens. And I think Scotland, in comparison, has a very strong sense of identity, but I don't think it really has that. And of course, it's complicated, but... Okay. Yeah, thanks. It's a good question. I took that to be quite um, quite a positive statement about the American approach. And I thought it was going to be a sort of more sceptical question about the American approach when it started, and then it seemed to be quite positive. And I think, I think being too American about it would, um, would... I think we would struggle with that if we were too American about it, because there's a sort of sense that you can do too much or you can do this in too kind of narrow a way. And actually that, that row between sort of, about Ralph Miliband, between uh, the Daily Mail and Ed Miliband and whoever else was involved in that, that felt a kind of bit of a sort of slightly American style of doing these things that, that we're not, that we're a bit averse to. I think, because in America, sort of un-American as a kind of political jibe, you know, is used quite is used quite a lot, and we don't. I don't think we've tended to do sort of un-British in that way. So if, you, if you're John Kerry and you fight in a war and then you go and oppose the war, your patriotism is questioned because of your political debate about the war. We we never we never felt that about you know if you take I don't know war poets in the First World War who are on the sort of Rupert Brooks side or on the Wilfred Owens. Like we never sort of question that the sort of patriotism or authenticity of those views is, is kind of... Well, we, we tend not to do that. I mean, some people do do that. Um, so um, I think you can do too much, and for a British sort of sensibility, the American approach is both too much and too narrow and is too sort of rigid a version of what patriotism is, but you can also do too little. And I think, I, think, I think we're moving away from sort of thinking that if you don't want a sort of excessively sort of what feels to us culturally imposed sort of version, then the answer is to sort of just let it all hang out. So, you know, some people were very um, sniffy about the idea of citizenship ceremonies, but the people who do them you know, report that they're very emotionally affecting and people who see them. And so I quite like to use the citizenship ceremony and find some way to get more contact out of why the citizenship ceremony is something really quite emotionally affirming for everybody involved. I quite like to see 18-year-olds, you know, in the citizenship ceremony with uh, new citizens uh, and so on. And certainly you talk to people who've been through them. And, um, I mean, one, one, one guy I met is a, is a, is a Newham councillor who was uh, uh, a refugee to this country from Sri Lanka. And he had he's telling a story about how he came to this country, you know, with one bag of possessions, really, because of the way the civil war played out, and he had to flee his home quite quickly. Um, and yeah, he's become a councillor, and he does the citizenship ceremonies for the London Borough of Newham, and has quite a booming voice saying, "This is I'm now telling you how it is, what you need to do to be British." And I think that's quite a sort of that's you know that's that's a very sort of I think warm and inclusive version that I think we shouldn't be too allergic to. So I think we could do a sort of dialed down version that worked for us, taking some lessons from the American thing, but doing it in a, I think a slightly more plural and laid back way. Thank you. So, you, 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 you
patriotism, you mentioned on citizen ceremonies and uh, history talking in American schools. I think it's a reflection that American identities in crisis on citizen ceremonies and uh, history talking schools, salute the flag, was really introduced during the 1960s, the Cold War and the Civil Rights Movement. Uh, you can see the Civil Rights Movement as the end of the Civil War, the US Civil War, the unofficial end. So I would say it's a, it's a symptom of the nationalism, of the identity which is in crisis. And other countries, other identity people who want to abandon their own identities, is because their own national governments have failed. The Southern European countries, they want to abandon their own currencies and their own empire. Their governments. They want to you know, embrace a super European identity, super European uh, government. I think, I think the question about crisis is a good one. I'm sure people, in a way, you know, decide to do something about national identity because there's a perceived need to do something. As I say, I think we didn't have this conversation in the Britain of the 1950s because national identity was secure and people didn't need to talk about what it was because they knew what it was. It starts to sort of break down in different ways in different times. So American identity may be in crisis. It may be in flux. You know, actually, there was a big, I think, a big political shock uh, the, in, the, in the demographics of the last presidential election because the Republican Party, which has had a particular political approach, I think, to like how to build majorities since the Civil Rights Act, you know, and uh, you know, I think Nixon saw a way to win the American South from the Democrats because Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act. It's very powerful in presidential elections. If you look at the way George Bush beat um, Dukakis, you know, the, the playing off, I think, white grievance and backlash politics. And the demography is tipped. And you're now paying a massive price, actually, an existential price, if you're seen to be the party that did that. And so the Republican ability to deal with, um, say, immigration reform and a proposal to regularise 10, 14 million, mainly non-white, mainly Hispanic Americans, if they do it, it looks like that will hit them badly politically. And if they don't do it, it looks like the demographic change will hit them badly politically. So they'll have to you know, have another kind of reconstruction. So I think identities can be in crisis, but they can also be in flux. I've given a reasonably positive version of British identity, which a lot of people think is in crisis. And in a way, what I don't want to have is a polarised debate between people who say, well, we're here at the LSE in London, we see the benefits of internationalism, we see the benefits of cosmopolitanism, diversity is good, change is good. If you don't like it, get with the programme, suck it up, like it or lump it. And people who say, well, I don't like, it's changed too fast, I don't like it, my country isn't my country. And you know, having a disagreement whether you should like change or find change unsettling. Because you can't win an argument. Someone who finds change unsettling can't win an argument with someone who likes change about how unsettling it is. And someone who likes change can't say, oh, no, you feel unsettled about it. Um, you should like it, like I do. I think society's changed a lot, and what we can do together to manage those changes in ways that makes us feel confident seems to me sort of a conversation that you could try and have across that. There's an increasing uh, generational divide about these questions. I mean, I think it's an obvious sort of intuitive psychological truth that if you're say over 65 
you have seen the country change quite a lot in your lived experience and you could be in the group that likes it or you could find it unsettling and you know if you look at who's going to vote UKIP you know, the percentage of the over 65s that will vote UKIP and the percentage of the under 24s that will vote UKIP, it's you know, 5% and 35%. It's a, it's a really generational thing because the, the sort of grandchild of the sort of older person who's going to vote UKIP can't understand why that change is felt to be unsettling because they grew up with that change. That change was already the norm. And so I think, I think you're just going to have very different views, very different experiences about, about this. And then the, the sort of challenge for democratic politics in a fast-changing society is how you negotiate your way through that and what, 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 what you do about it. I think, you know, as with the US... I think, you know, politics has a driver that people have to adapt to the society that they live in, not the society that used to exist 30 years ago or 60 years ago, because, because there's a political need to do that. And so that's one, I think, of the drivers for optimism. But while you have, I think, these big generational divides just in this sort of cultural sense of how it's being handled, it's actually quite difficult. But I think what doesn't help is a kind of polarised shouting match about, you know, hooray for change or boo to change, when the debate is how do you manage change in a way that takes people through it. Yeah, thanks. I think it's a very good point, um, uh, which, which which I think is well made about about the sort of values and also just the fact that we we definitely experience our political choices as being national and sometimes local. And a sort of European election, as I was saying right at the start, hasn't really made sense. It hasn't by electing a European Parliament, you haven't created a European public. We just turn up and act as local and national citizens, and then it all gets sort of aggregated up in a European institution somewhere. But we don't sort of sit up eagerly all night waiting for the sort of results from Portugal to sort of see which teams won there, because it just doesn't feel like the same kind of thing. That goes back to the previous question as well about the do people want a European identity. To some extent, I think the European project has run ahead of 
consent for it. And, you know, the sort of British scepticism about that is more widely shared now by European publics, even though it's obviously stronger in Britain. And, you know, there's obviously much more commitment to the European Union among the German public for, you know, very big political, historical, cultural reasons in Germany. You know, countries that were quite enthusiastic are struggling with this this as well. I think, in a way, the worst move... um, the European Union made was to try and ape sort of flags, anthems and national symbols, which I just don't think work at that level, instead of saying this is a useful sphere of cooperation. You know, your governments and your democratic politicians should cooperate at this level because of climate change, because of the economy, because of global finance. You should cooperate at this level. But the the levers seem to me very much national. But those benefits you talked about, actually this is one of the issues about managing that tension. Uh, If you're a European citizen, uh, the benefits of national citizenship um, are not particularly much greater than the benefits of European citizenship. You know, the people are less least likely if they come here to take um, uh, up British citizenship. Um, historically, have been Irish people because we treat them as if they've taken up citizenship whether they have or not. And now Polish people don't tend to take up British citizenship because they have the rights of work access and labour rights and welfare rights, etc., by dint of the European kind of project. And uh, domestic citizens aren't that sure about aren't that sure about whether that was the deal they wanted, it might or might not value kind of free movement. And occasionally you'll have somebody saying, I heard the European Commissioner on the radio saying free movement isn't immigration. You know, if you're thinking about the sort of Polish or Romanians or Bulgarians as immigrants you've made a category mistake. And I think people around the country just be scratching their heads saying, I mean, it's true, it's a matter of law, but saying, what's he, uh, what's he talking about? What, what, planet, what planet is that on? So actually, the citizenship rights increasingly are now at the European level as well as at the national level, even though the political choices, I think, are still at the national level. I'm conscious that Sundra has been answering questions for about 40 minutes uh, already. Um, I've got... Uh, uh, three people, I think, who want to ask questions. Would it be all right if I take these questions yeah. together? So there's, there's uh, one at the back there. So there, uh, you have a question, and you wanted to ask a question. Yes, you're all right. Could people just say their name as well, if we're taking questions together, just so I can remind, yes. remember what question I'm answering? Thank you. 
kind of a generation divide between the young and old, and how the young you know, kind of begin with these changes. Um, the young tend to be more pro-European, according to Holmes, and more open to these sort of changes that we're, that we're experiencing now. So do you think in the future that we could experience a generational shift to our national identity? Great. Should it be a human identity, not a national identity? I suppose the broad case I'm making is that you'll secure more sort of content in sort of universalism and internationalism, strengthening multilateral regimes and responsibilities by arguing in national democratic politics about the internationalist version of the nations we want to be than by jumping over to say let us be citizens of the world I think that there have been moments of that um, historically sort of global federal union and to some extent the European project is certainly in a way the most developed of these projects but they're problematic I think in their ability to secure support. We should then argue about what we want to owe to each other as human beings and you know universal protections that are in the universal Declaration of human rights we want to owe each other as human beings and then we've got to work out how to do it and so you know the right not to be tortured we can have as an unviable right but then we've now got to find a way of bringing that about and on the whole short of a global government that doesn't look like it's on the agenda and that I think it would be very much a struggle to get people to want one or to see how it would work and give them a voice we're going to need you know the responsibilities of nations to uphold those values for their own citizens and then to look at you know how far we intrude in each other's countries and yeah, European countries have let their neighbours intrude a lot because of the history you've mentioned, you know, to a very foundational degree. And, you know, so it's, uh, it's complicated. Will there be a generation shift? Up to a point, I think it's possible. There's, there's not much sense. I mean, there are two different things going on. Certainly, the more affluent you are, the more highly educated you are, and the younger you are, all of these things would tend towards the shift that you meant. And there's some evidence, I think, that generation is now sort of overtaking class as important, but they go together. So a sort of, you know, affluent, highly educated person with three degrees in the LSE and a good job, you know, will, will have a kind of, will, will be the most likely person to take the sort of internationalist Kind of, kind of, kind of, kind of view. There's been a profound generation shift on questions like race, um, and there's been a bit less of one, I think, on questions like Europe, because actually it feels more pragmatic. It was probably a cause for a sort of the first post-war generation. It still felt like a cause in the 70s, and it feels like more of a pragmatic thing, I think, to a younger generation. If it could attach itself more to causes uh, that this generation feels are important, whether that turns out to be climate development or something, that, that might work. But it, it slightly lost its value as a, as a cause. Although, as a pragmatic thing, people who think that they might themselves be mobile value free movement quite a lot more as a prospect. I mean, if, you, if you're sort of 18 year old or 20 year old now, you will be quite worried about free movement going away for us and for them. Or because it will limit your horizons. Yeah, but there's, and that might be that might be the case. But people people who are 65 and here living here haven't gone to Spain. Don't you know? Don't see it as a sort of thing. And don't don't seem to be saying that's very important to my grandchildren either. Although it would affect people who've who've done that. If you look at sort of you know, if polling asks, would you be worried about this if we left the European Union? Younger people are much more likely to say 
yes, I'd be worried about that. But it's a more, it feels a bit more instrumental now than a sort of, than a kind of, I'd like to not have my national identity, I'd like to have my pan-national identity. Because I just think, um, firstly, Europe didn't maintain that level of resonance. And secondly, the horizons are more global than European. So Europe actually feels a little bit narrow, actually, as a kind of, as a thing. And so you can look, in a sense, protectionist rather than uh, internationalist. Well, I think that uh, we've covered such a wide range of the different issues that come up in relation to national identity that we should let our speaker now have a rest. So um, can you join me in thanking Sundar Kapola for such a very... <laughs>